We are now in week two of a seven-week series in the book of Malachi. And what you're going to find is that Malachi will coincide beautifully with the Lenten season. A, a quick recap before we get started this morning. Malachi, he is a prophet sent by God to the nation of Israel after they've returned home from their exile in Babylon. He did his ministry around 500 to 450 BC. And Israel, they have returned home but they haven't yet returned to God. They might be back in their land, but they're still figuring out what it means to give their lives back to God. Last week, we looked at the first message God gave to his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. Before anything else is said and done, God wants his people to know this for certain, that his love for them hasn't changed, that God loves them, that God has loved them, he does love them, and he will continue to love them. And we see in Malachi that God's love always precedes any call upon our lives to change. God uh, affirms his love before he ever calls us to some sort of obedience. But now that God has affirmed his love for Israel, the remainder of the message of Malachi uh, moves into some serious issues in the relationship between God and his people. The aim is reconciliation. But before that can happen, God wants to have some real talk. God's hope, I think, in Malachi is that the people would see how his unswerving love has always remained with them. And when they see that love, they would return to him. That they would repent of the many issues that stand between them and God. Because God, he wants um, not just their lives and their hearts in word or sentiment. He wants their whole lives. He wants their lives fully devoted to him. He wants them to return to him. God's aim is reconciliation. So it makes sense that the very first thing that God addresses with his people is the sacrificial system. Within within Israel, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, uh, this was the backbone of their relationship with God. This is how they worked out their relationship with God. And the entire system, we're told by Malachi, is compromised. So as we walk through Malachi chapter 1 this morning, verses 6 through 14, uh, we will see how the sacrifices that we make for God reflect how we see God and reflect how we see ourselves. So first, we're going to look at uh, second-rate sacrifices. Then we're going to look at the reason for sacrifices. And then we're going to look at the perfect sacrifice. So open your Bibles with me. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? God gets straight to the point. He's not beating around the bush. He says to his people, and specifically to the priests, you despise me. You should honor me. You should fear me. But you despise me. When you despise something, it's, uh, it's not just the way you feel towards it, it's the way you act towards it. Uh, I despise mushrooms. I hate them. Uh, and not only do I feel contempt towards mushrooms, but when I get the chance, I will take them out of the fridge and put them in the garburetor. I will crush the mushrooms because I despise them. It's the same with people. When you despise someone, you might feel uh, contempt or dislike or even hatred towards that person. But you can rarely contain that as a feeling. You're going to act towards them. It might not be obvious. You might not crush them, but uh, you might say the thing behind their back. You might always be bringing them up. You might always be talking bad about them. 
When you despise something, you act. God says to Israel, you despise me. You feel despite towards me and you're, you're acting out of despite towards me. And then the people say, how? How have we despised your name? They don't see it. And that should make us question, how can you be doing something as blatantly obvious as despising God and not know about it? To despise someone and not even know that you're doing it. I find it's something that rarely happens immediately. You can probably tell from looking at me that I love pizza. Uh, And when I was in high school, graduating high school, I figured this love for pizza would make a good vocation. So I became a pizza delivery man at Panagopolis, you know, before it was called Panago. I just dated myself. And uh, I really liked pizza. And this was, honestly, if I wasn't going to be a pastor, I would go back to pizza. Like, I just love this job. And the best part of my job is actually the Panago coworkers. We were all like a little family. And I was a hard worker at Panago. I started out as a pizza delivery guy, and then I became like a cook, and then I became like a managing cook, and I could like throw the dough in the air, and and I was passionate about my job. But the one thing that unified our little family was our shared um, dislike of our boss. He was never a consistent man. Uh, He would show in one day and just be like totally happy, and a minute later, just furious for no reason. Uh, He would give you the shifts you want one week and then the next week give you no shifts. He would uh, send you home early for no reason and then the next day keep you late. He was just never consistent. And over time, uh, in turn, we started to treat him poorly. It started simple at first, just tonight we're going to make ourselves a free pizza. And uh, then it was the next night and the next night. And then all of a sudden it was you know, free pizza for our friends and family when they stopped by. And then it was you know, free sodas all the time or pop. And... Uh, We treated him poorly. Now, if you ask me, Alistair, you know, back then, do you despise your boss? I said, no, I don't despise him. If you asked, well, are you doing something wrong here? I would have said, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. And if you just called me out and said, you're dishonoring your boss, I would have said, why does he deserve my honor? Of course, I was in the wrong. I was stealing. I was being disloyal. I was lying. And yet, I was despising my boss. I was acting poorly against him, but I would have never said that. Becoming blind to how we are really living uh, is a a matter of increments and degrees. It starts simple. I'm going to indulge in this sin just this once. Whatever this thing is, I'm just going to do it this once. And initially you feel a a sting, a twinge of guilt, a, a hint of conviction, but then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And before you know it, you, you no longer feel that sting. And not too long later, you realize, what, what was so bad about this anyways? And if someone were to even call you out and say, look at what you're doing in your life, you would say, why are you calling this a sin? It's not so bad. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Over time, it can convince us that it's not all that bad, that it's actually a good thing. That's what's happening here to the people of Israel. It's a matter of increments and degrees. It's a compromised thing here and there. But over time, uh, they've been set on such a trajectory away from God that they don't even recognize the distance between them and God. And they don't even recognize how that distance is actually them despising God. Not just passively, but actively. Well, how are they despising them? Look at verses 7 and 8. 
You're despising me by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Their despite of God has a lot to do with their offerings. The book of Leviticus is full of these rules uh, about offerings and how they should be offered. And to us, from our vantage point in history, we, it seems like a very odd book. Uh, a friend of mine, a youth pastor, the way he would get his uh, kids to be quiet, he'd say, until you guys are quiet, I'm going to do a reading from the book of Leviticus. And if you pipe up, I'll start again. Leviticus, the laws for burnt offerings. Amy, quiet. Leviticus, the laws of burnt offerings. It seems like an odd book. What animal to give, the quality of the animal, how to cut it up, what to do with the remains. It's so foreign. But to the nation of Israel, the sacrificial system and the priesthood were the backbone and heartbeat of their relationship with God. It was through these offerings, it was through these sacrifices that they understood what it, was meant, uh, what it meant to have forgiveness from God. It was through uh, these sacrifices and offerings that they knew how to praise God in a tangible way. And they knew very, 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 very well that if you're going to make an offering to God, whether it's a sin offering, whether it's a, a guilt offering, whether it is a wave offering, you don't hold back. If you make a wave offering, you don't wave like the queen. You know, you are doing the wave. If you're going to uh, offer a goat, you don't give Quasimodo the one-eyed goat. You know, you give the very best. But we're told uh, by Malachi that the priests are accepting polluted offerings from the people. They're bringing blind animals. They're bringing lame and sick animals. They're actually bringing animals uh, that they couldn't eat, animals they couldn't sell, animals that you couldn't even give to someone. These offerings, they blatantly violate the laws set out in Leviticus. They're despising God's table by not giving him the very best. And God is just straight up with them. He says, it's evil. Your offerings, they're evil. God says in verse 8 and 9, Present that to your governor. Let's see how that goes for you. And now you entreat my favor. You entreat the favor of the Lord that he might be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? The people know. If you're going to make an offering to the governor, you give the best of the best. You don't hold back. And God points out their utter foolishness. If you wouldn't even give this to an earthly ruler, how much, how dare you give it to a holy king? He puts the issue on the table. He brings it to their attention. He says, this is how you're despising me. Your offerings are evil. You have no fear or honor of me. Your offerings are polluted. They're thoughtless. They're offensive. And then look at how the people respond. Look at verse 13. What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. If you were, ask, if you were to ask uh, Julia, what was the first impression that you got from Alistair the first time you met him? Word for word, she would say he was too cool for school, which was totally the impression I was trying to make, hashtag fail. Uh, when the people snort at God, they're being too cool for school. This is a Hebraic way of saying that they were turning their noses up at God. They're better than this. 
We've seen how Israel are despising God in their actions, but now we see how Israel, they're despising God in their heart. They find the whole sacrificial system a weariness. Think about that, a weariness. This is the system by which they understood their relationship with God. This is the way they understood that they had forgiveness, and they find it a weariness. They find being in a relationship with God weary. Sacrifice after sacrifice, animal after animal, always the best effort and work required, time-consuming. But before we're too harsh on Israel, I think we should admit we know what it is to find following God wearisome. Sometimes we look at all the things that we think are required of us as Christians. Reading our Bibles every day, having a devotional time with the Lord, praying going to church, being in a small group, serving the poor, giving sacrificially, tweeting about Jesus. And we, we find it burdensome. It wearies us. So instead, we ask, Lord, like I get what you want, but what's the radical bare minimum I can put in so that we're okay? Is what, like, what can I do just to get by and be okay with you? When giving our full lives to God seems like too much, we compartmentalize our lives. Yeah, I I give God an hour and a half on a Sunday. Uh, I give him the occasional prayer during the week. Uh, But the rest of my life, the best of my life, that's kept for me. What if I approached Julia this way? What if I said, Julia, what is the radical bare minimum I can do in our relationship so that you won't leave me? What is the radical bare minimum that I can invest into Ansley so that I wouldn't be classified as a bad father? Not necessarily a good father, just not a bad father. It's ridiculous. Whatever we give God, whenever it's a leftover, whenever it's the stuff that doesn't really cost us anyways, whenever it's begrudgingly given to him, we're living like Israel here in Malachi. When God looks at these half-hearted, second-rate sacrifices, He says in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God would rather the priests shut down the whole system than receive one of these offerings. It's all in vain. Essentially, God is saying, if we're going to give him our leftovers, we might as well own what we're really doing and give him nothing at all. Why? Second-rate sacrifices reveal uh, how highly we view ourselves. We really think that the world should revolve around us, around our comfort, around our convenience. Have you ever noticed how we use the words, uh, me, my, and mine? My time, my job, my money, my life, my choices, my hobbies. I like what is mine and I don't give it up. I want the best to be mine. Giving God the leftover shows that we want to enjoy the best stuff, the good stuff for ourselves because really we think it's ours, not his. We have a high view of ourselves. Second rate, uh, sacrifices also show that we have a low view of God. What is he actually worthy of? Our scraps. The things that don't cost us much at all. Throwing our scraps to God like a dog at the table shows just how negatively we view him. 
He's a stickler for rules. He has all these regulations. He's an inconvenience. He's wearisome. He's burdensome. We'll placate him. Just give him you know, the radical bare minimum so that he'll leave us alone to do whatever it is that we want to do. It's a low view of God. Second-rate sacrifices reveal that we don't really think forgiveness is all that costly. You might think, you know what, I'm really a pretty good person. Sure, I make mistakes, but atoning for my sin, come on. And this is the view of our culture. I'm yet to meet someone on the streets of Vancouver that says to me, you know what, I'm a terrible person. No, everyone thinks that they're relatively a good person. Everyone thinks, yeah, sure, I might make mistakes, but that doesn't speak about my moral character. I am a good person. And any God that can't see that, any God that would require some sort of costly sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, this is a barbaric, archaic God. What sort of God is this? Just forgive and let live. Get over it. This attitude, though, shows that we, th- we don't think God should be as c- concerned about our sins as he is. We don't think that sins are really all that costly or that forgiveness is all that costly. Again, you can probably tell from looking at me that this guy needs counseling. Uh, when, I, when I was at a counselor uh, in, Fl- in Florida, a good friend of mine in the long run, um, it should be after how much I paid him. Anyways, um, <laughs> he always used to say to me, Alistair, Alistair, nobody likes an apology with a butt in it. It smells like ass. Now, it's crude, but what's his point? The moment that we say, I'm sorry, but, and then give a bunch of justifications and reasons, I'm sorry, but you're just really sensitive. I'm sorry, but I was really hungry. It's not an apology at all. A sincere apology um, owns and recognizes the action with no excuses. It requests forgiveness without any um, justification of why you did what you did. It waits for the forgiveness or for an answer with no ifs, ands, or buts. When we offer God second-rate sacrifices... What we're really saying is, I'm sorry, but. I'm sorry, God, but you're really demanding. You're really making way too big a deal of this. I'm sorry, God, but you're asking way too much. I'm sorry, God, that you think I'm so bad. When God sees us approaching him with these second-rate offerings in our hands, he says, no thanks. Shut it down. God doesn't want our second-rate sacrifices because ultimately they miss the reason God wants sacrifices at all. God doesn't need our sacrifices. We need our sacrifices. That's the reason for sacrifices. For Israel, the sacrificial system, the sacrifices, they were supposed to give an honest view of themselves. If you were an Israelite, And you gave sincerely your sacrifices. You had to acknowledge that your mistakes, no matter how big or small, whether a white lie or an epic failure, were immensely costly. That sin is costly. That it's supposed to cost your life. That the consequences of sin is supposed to be death. But instead, God accepts an animal. 
an unblemished animal for your blemished life. It had to be the best to recognize the cost of your sin and also to recognize the cost of atonement. But it also had to cause some discomfort too. This was an animal you raised in your flock. Probably an animal that you tended to the most, it being the best. And you had to put your hands on its head. You had to slit its throat and hear it cry. You had to see its life reduced down to death and then its body reduced down to ashes so that you could see just how costly sin is and where its end really goes. If, if you properly offered sacrifices, you'd have a more honest view of yourself. That You need to approach God contritely with humility. Sacrifices were actually meant to keep the people aware of their need for grace. God is accepting the animal instead of your life. Um, But think about it. God's given you that animal. It's not your animal. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. You're giving God back his goat. You're giving God back his bird. You're only offering to God what he's already given you. God provides everything you need for atonement, for forgiveness. It's all grace. But most of all, sacrifices were supposed to keep the people anchored in a very high view of God. God is holy. As Malachi says in verse 14, he's a great king. And as a great king, if you rebel against him, he would be just and righteous in doing so to end your life. Because your life, your breath is but borrowed from the lungs of God. If If you really saw God, you would see that he should be honored because he's being gracious and merciful to you over and over and over again. The sacrifices then shouldn't be out of obligation or ritual. They should be out of a a joyful appreciation and a reverent fear of this great king who's holy, just, and powerful, and yet simultaneously merciful and loving and compassionate towards you. What God is trying to get across to his people through Malachi is that he cares a lot more about how they make the sacrifices than about what they sacrifice. Does God require an animal without blemish? Yeah, absolutely. Is it about the animal? No. It's about our hearts. What Israel missed and what we can seem to miss is that God didn't need the sacrificial system. He says sarcastically in the scriptures, if I was hungry, Israel, I wouldn't tell you. It's not like I need this food. David picks up on this in the Psalms, Psalm 51, 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The prophets pick up on this. Listen to Hosea 6.6. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The New Testament picks up on this. The author of Hebrews says that the entire priesthood and sacrificial system were just a shadow of what God was going to do. He writes, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away uh, sins. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. 
The sacrificial system for Israel was supposed to be a glimpse, just a little peek into God's grace, into what God was going to do. But God always had something bigger in mind. He always had something better in mind. He always had something significantly more beautiful in his mind. It was never about goats and bulls. It was never about anything that people could offer to him. The sacrificial system was always a shadow cast by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Because of his death on the cross, Jesus abolishes the sacrificial system. The author of Hebrews, he writes in uh, chapter 10, verse 12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. No more sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. No more animal after animal after animal. Jesus did what we could never do. He offers a perfect one-time sacrifice. A sacrifice that for all time takes away the sins of the world. A sacrifice that offers forgiveness to anyone who draws near to him. We know a sincere apology costs us. But we also know how much more forgiving someone costs us. An apology, it never actually undoes what happened. It never reverses it. When we forgive someone, we, uh, when we forgive someone that has hurt us especially, we're deciding to absorb the cost. The hurt, the pain, the time it took to process that, that can't be undone. We absorb it and we say, I forgive you for that. Forgiveness is always costly. We get that. God on the cross wants to show us just, first and foremost, he wants to show us his heart. He wants to show us just how much he loves us. But by doing that, he is showing us just how much it costs for him to forgive us. The sinless Savior of the world on a cross, him who was without sin, becoming our sin, dying our death, not out of obligation, but freely. Crucified, the scriptures say, he was crucified, and they don't even describe it. Because to anyone listening, they saw that every day. They knew how horrific it was. The Son of God came into the world to be crucified. To show that the Father forgives, but just how costly it is to forgive us. Just how serious our sins are, but also to show us how far he puts our sins away from us. He forgives us. Jesus chose to absorb the cost of our sin. The question is, uh, will you accept Jesus? Or will one day God say to you, you despise me? You might think, well, how could I despise Jesus? Seems a little odd. Plenty of ways. Uh, You can look at his death and think, well, that was an unfortunate turn of events. Jesus was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. In doing that, you're despising Jesus. You're despising what he said himself, that this was the very reason he came into the world. The moment you make the cross about a good man just happening to become a martyr, 
You are despising the cross because the cross is always about God reconciling the world to himself and him offering forgiveness to a world that doesn't need it, but to a world that he loves and wants to forgive anyways. The moment you compromise that message or make it about something else, you are despising Jesus. If you look at the cross and you think it's just too much, I don't deserve that. Or on the other hand, you say, I'm not so bad that I would need someone to die for me. Either way, you're actually despising Jesus by holding on to your pride. You're refusing to recognize that it costs precisely that much for you to be forgiven. And whether you want it or not, it's already been done for you. Or you hear about Jesus, you hear about it in the service, and you go home today and you never give Jesus a second thought. You never ask the question, is Jesus really who he said he is? Is this forgiveness really available from God? You never entertain that question. But you heard about it. and You did nothing. You're despising Jesus. And if you despise God, if you despise his son, Malachi is really clear. You have nothing to offer God. You stand before him with polluted sacrifices. You are unacceptable in his sight. It is harsh. It's a very harsh reality check, I know. But you don't need to be despised. The grace is, is freely offered. The forgiveness, it's freely offered. What does it look like then? To accept Christ's perfect sacrifice. God desires from us what he's always desired from us. He doesn't want burnt offerings from our hands. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to be broken about our sin. He wants us to have contrite spirits. Recognizing our desperate need for his mercy and forgiveness. Recognizing that we can't earn it or merit it. But coming before him contritely. He wants us to to love him, and to desire to know him more. He doesn't want animal sacrifices. He wants us to turn to him in repentance and faith and trust and believe in Jesus. St. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1, God doesn't want dead animals. He wants you to be a living sacrifice. He wants your entire life to be given to him. The way that the scriptures always describe this humble, loving, seeking to know him, depending on his grace, sort of sacrifice from us. The only problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. Maybe you're worrying, am I trusting Jesus enough? Am I being faithful enough? Does God despise me because I seem to keep making the same mistakes over and over and over? And here's the thing. God doesn't need a perfect sacrifice from you because he's already received the perfect sacrifice from you or from Jesus on your behalf. God sees you because of Christ with such compassion and mercy that you can be the mess that you are. You can be in process. You can have it not all figured out. You can be struggling. 
but you're completely forgiven, you're completely accepted, you're completely loved and cherished because of the perfect offering of Christ. So let me say to you, don't let the sin that once brought you to the cross keep you from it now. Always run towards the cross as imperfect as you are because Christ's sacrifice is perfect. It is more than we could ever do. We are reconciled to God, not by anything we could ever offer or sacrifice, but by what Christ has done on our behalf. And when we accept that, when we accept his offering, we see the extent of God's love for us. I have loved you, says the Lord. We say, yes, you have. It fills our mouths and our lips with praise. You've made the sacrifice we could never offer. You have loved us in a way that we never deserve. You have forgiven us even in the depths of our sin. You have caught us up into your amazing story. You are a great king. Your name is being known among the nations. You are drawing us into your story. You are making your name feared among the nations. There is not one square inch of the universe that you are not making your name great. Lord, you are great. We become filled with praise when we contemplate the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And then we see the truth. Then we see the power. Then we see the magnitude of verse 11 in Malachi. From the rising of the sun to its setting. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. When we receive what Christ has done for us, we don't only praise him with our lips, we praise him with our lives. We say, Lord, be great in us. Lord, be great in our city. Lord, be great in the world. Lord, use my life in such a way that your glory is on display. Lord, let me be a living sacrifice, as imperfect as I am. As we journey through Lent together as a community, as you guys each make your own sacrifices to try to draw near to God, let those only create space in your life to recognize your need for Christ's perfect sacrifice. May you know in this Lenten season the depths to which God has loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. 